You sit in front of the TV. It's been a long day. And you see a commercial playing. Fever diarrhea riddles your body. It's reality today for countless children. You can't take your eyes off the screen now. It's a young child. Throughout the entire commercial, the little boy doesn't ever speak. It's the narrator's voice that you hear. Yet there is hope. You can start saving lives today with just two euro a week. This comes from a charity commercial that was aired in 2013. And nowhere is this image more emotionally charged than with children who've lost their families. With orphan children. The thing is, images like these make it seem simple. It doesn't take much to understand the situation. These African kids are hungry. They have no families. And we can help. But is it really that simple? Commercials like this one have been filmed all throughout Africa, including in the West African country of Ghana. And the people there who know those children best are Ghana's social workers, workers like Samuel. So they was good, but it ended up being so tiring. Samuel is 33 years old. He works for the Ghanaian Department of Social Welfare. I started um, from the School of Social Work. And that means that for the last six years, He's helped to monitor the orphanages in Ghana. A few years back, Samuel got a tip-off about one particular orphanage. From um, someone who had gone to see what was going on there. He only had a little bit of information, so he didn't really know what to expect. And when he got there, he found himself at a place that looked like a warehouse. That place used to be a cocoa shed, so it was like a storeroom for cocoa. It had no window. It had just one door. And on the wall, the orphanage director had nailed planks of wood. About two feet wide, very long on the walls. In fact, it looked like a bookshelf nailed on the wall, and those were where the kids were sleeping. They, they were just like, um, they were just like kept, they were being kept like pets. Samuel left the orphanage in a daze. That was, that was the worst one I had seen. This is a story we see a lot. Orphanages where kids live in awful conditions. At first glance, it seems like what we might find in those charity commercials. Sad eyes, starving bodies. But the thing is, Samuel has seen more than that. He's also seen things that don't make it into those commercials. Things very few Westerners ever see. And what Samuel's seen turns the entire story of orphans in Africa into something much more complicated. Imagine the scene for a moment. There's a rural village in Ghana. It's nestled in the forest, and there's about a few hundred people living here. There are huts that are made of brown dirt with grass roofs. There's a young child playing on the street. He's about six years old, and his mom's nearby. She's washing her clothes by hand. Her name is Gifty, and that kid, that's her son, Isaac. Isaac looks up. He sees a red dust cloud in the distance. It turns into a white bus, driving towards the village. Two men step out of the bus. The driver is Ghanaian, but the man next to him is white. He's wearing a blue dress shirt and sunglasses, expensive things. 
Both men start to walk towards Gifty, who's still washing her clothes. The Ghanaian man points first to Isaac, then to the white man next to him, and he tells Gifty, This man has money. He will help us take care of your child. That voice, that's Samuel again. He's telling us the sort of things that orphanage directors tell parents in impoverished villages. They go to the houses and then lie to them. Okay, your child will live there. Your child will go to school, will be taken to school, food and shelter. You have built a very beautiful structure over there. That's a home for children, he explains. A nice orphanage that's nicer than the little huts here. Everything about a child, just leave that for us. We'll take care of your child for you. Isaac is scared, but Gifty, she looks at the white man with his nice blue shirt. She pulls Isaac close, and she tells him to get on the bus, because she believes there's a better future for him there. The engine growls, and the bus rumbles away in a cloud of red dust. Isaac doesn't see his mother for the next five years. What we've just seen is Isaac being recruited to be an orphan. There are nearly 150 orphanages in Ghana, and that's a lot. But the vast majority have been established there illegally. The children in those orphanages, the Department of Social Welfare estimates that up to 90% still have surviving parents. 90%. So why are they called orphans in the first place? Well, to understand that, you have to understand the incentives that orphanages face because orphans attract a unique sort of sympathy. Volunteers were also coming around the orphanages and giving donations. Volunteers would see the state these kids were in, and they would try to give money to the orphanage to help. Charities did this too, but that money rarely reached the kids. When you go to some orphanages, the children are not happy with the directors because they see people bringing them stuff. Yet when they need, when they need those things, they don't get it. So the question is, where do those things go to? Some orphanages have become a business. Kids are treated like animals at a circus, something rare and exotic to keep the cash flowing. Kids can also be sold for adoption. There are families who will pay bribes to get around adoption protocols, so orphanage directors can exchange kids for large sums of money. They just give them out for adoption, and then they decide to make money out of it. These illegal adoptions got so out of control that the government had to freeze all international adoptions. They stopped letting kids leave Ghana. There are about 4,000 children in Ghana's orphanage system. That means there are 4,000 different stories. There are the children who've been bused away from their families and sent to orphanages. But some kids are there for other reasons. Their stories add yet another layer to this picture. I met Emmanuel at an orphanage in Carranza. He's 16. His name's Emmanuel, but the younger boys, they had another name for him. The captain is here. The captain is coming. Yeah. Okay. Hi. For How are you? Yeah. Yeah, I'm fine. Uh, Emmanuel is my name. Emmanuel carries himself with a swagger. He started a football team here with the younger boys. Uh, when I grow up, I want to be a footballer. I'll be telling God to help me to become a best footballer for the Ghanaians. But after we finished talking about football, we hit a topic that made him deflate. It was a different Emmanuel talking. And how long have you been here? 
Uh, here. I can I can see four years, maybe yes, four years. Four years. Emmanuel's sixteen now. That means he spent his entire teenage existence here. By law, orphanages aren't supposed to keep kids longer than six months, but many kids like Emmanuel don't have families to go back to. Emmanuel's parents are dead, and his relatives can't care for him. Emmanuel gets three square meals a day here, but his future is still uncertain. He'll probably spend the next two years here till he's a legal adult. There are many reasons why kids end up in orphanages. There are also many problems with orphanages themselves. First, many have become businesses. Second, kids languish in orphanages for years. And third, countless studies show how living in orphanages can be harmful to a child's development. These are issues that one woman in Ghana understood particularly well. My name is Helena Obin Asamoah. Helena was born and raised in Ghana. She trained to be a social worker, just like Samuel. But soon afterwards, she took the position of director of Osu Children's Home. That is the largest state of origin, Accra, Ghana. There are a lot of kids in Osu, over 150. Osu is one of those few orphanages in Ghana that is legally registered. It's actually run by the Ghanaian government. But even here in her own orphanage, Helena saw terrible things. She saw how orphanages were failing their kids. Kids like nine-year-old Joe. Who came in when he was HIV positive. And the children, many of them didn't want to get close to him. And even the, the staff, some of them were scared. And this boy would come and sit with me in my office the whole day. And it was painful to see him whisked away. This boy, I mean, he died painfully later. So these things, even as I talk about them now, um, I have tears in my eyes. Nine-year-old Joe died inside Osu, surrounded by 300 kids who shunned him. For Helena, that was unacceptable. I mean, right there I knew that children did not belong to orphanages and that children belong to families. The problem was, it was difficult to find families for these kids. Helena tried many times to find their surviving relatives. But most times, the children didn't have any files or family records, so finding families for these kids was hard. Then, in 2007, something changed. The Ghanaian Department of Social Welfare came out with a new strategy. They called it the Care Reform Initiative. CRI for short. The CRI was a new concept. It was something new that we we were just starting. The goal of the CRI was to phase out reliance on orphanages and instead move towards family-based care for children. It emphasized local empowerment, schools, women's shelters, things to bolster the community. And the government appointed Helena to lead it. At first, leaving Osu was tough. I felt like I was leaving my children in the hands of a stranger. And it, it hurt so much. But Helena knew that keeping kids in orphanages couldn't be sustained. She felt that Ghana needed a bigger change. And the CRI was potentially that bigger change. The backbone of the CRI is something called profiling. That involves collecting information on every child in the orphanage for every orphanage in Ghana. 
And the people carrying this profiling out are the social workers, people like Samuel. Samuel would travel to orphanages around Ghana, sometimes many hours by van. And when he got there, he would lead the kids one by one to a quieter part of the orphanage. And he would interview them there. He used an extensive questionnaire called a CPQ. Everything from a child's family history, to their health information, to their experiences in the orphanage, they were all carefully collected in those CPQs. As you can probably imagine, profiling is slow, on-the-ground work. At some orphanages, Samuel would be sworn by kids, all wanting to be interviewed next. At others, he received frosty welcomes from the orphanage directors. But one child at a time, Samuel and the other social workers, all began building a central source of information on these kids. When this profiling was just beginning, Helena met a wealthy couple from Palo Alto, California. Their names were Marcy and John Stevens. They wanted to build an orphanage in Ghana, just like many who had come before them. But Helena stopped them. The founders came to Ghana wanting to start an orphanage, and we said no. We said it's no good to start. Ghana had recently banned the creation of more orphanages, yet Helena told the Stevens, But you can do something else for children. The Stevens had resources and money and good intentions. There was a place for all those things, just not in building an orphanage. Instead, Helena enlisted the Stevens to build an online database to keep track of all the profiles that Samuel and his team had collected. She also asked for international volunteers who could be trained to help the social workers. Together, Helena and the Stevens created a nonprofit called Kaime. With Kaime working hand-in-hand with the Department of Social Welfare, Helena's team was able to scale up the CRI. Since 2007, they've profiled 2,500 children. That's more than half of the total number of kids in orphanages. And using that information, they can trace kids back to their families. There's one case that Helena remembers well. There are three children who have been taken to an orphanage. Their mother and grandmother were still alive. So when we succeeded in having them reunified in a, a, a remote village, I saw the bonding between these children and their mother and their grandmother. They were so close, and when they saw our car, they ran away because they thought we were going to take them back to the orphanage. Reunification with family, that's the gold standard of the Care Reform Initiative. But the CRI is designed to do more than that. Because those questionnaires the social workers use also ensure the kids' voices are heard. One question asks, do you like living in this orphanage, or would you rather live somewhere else? Some kids told the workers they wanted to stay in the orphanage. They didn't want to leave. And that makes sense. There are orphanages, and they are a tiny minority, that do really care for the kids. And when those kids don't have a family to go back to, they can find that sense of family, of brotherhood, in the orphanage. I found this at one orphanage in Sunyani. I was sitting with a few of the kids out in the field, inside an empty bus. It was the bus they took to school every day. They used it as their hangout spot. When they saw my recording equipment, their eyes lit up, and all the kids began pointing to a boy named Richmond. Richmond's about 16. He's tall, with a goofy smile even when he talks. And when the kids called on him to rap, he was more than happy to oblige. Richmond could rap. He wasn't shy about it. The other kids circled around, adding in their voices. But having the microphone there opened up more than musical talents. 
Soon, the kids were passing the mic around, interviewing each other, talking about football, even interviewing me. Here's Richmond again. Aristotle. I have you heard about Aristotle? Yeah, the philosopher. Aristotle, okay. Aristotle brought about this classification of science. When Richmond spoke to a social worker in his profiling interview, he said he didn't want to leave this orphanage. He had a sense of family here. And that's something that Helena, Samuel, and the rest of the social work team all understand. They're not trying to force every orphanage child into a home. That wouldn't make sense for a lot of the kids who get what they need in their orphanage. But you wouldn't know that if you don't talk to these kids. That's why profiling so heavily relies on the voices of the kids themselves. See, I'm saying that what God has done for me, I really appreciate it. And it's not impossible to find orphanages where kids feel like they have a family. But many times, kids say they feel a stronger sense of home outside the walls of an orphanage, with a real family. So this idea has become central to the Care Reform Initiative, trying to ensure that every child can feel that same sense of family. Many miles away, there's a woman who lives just outside the capital of Accra. She lives in a two-story stone house. Parts of the first floor aren't quite finished. There are piles of cement and wood on the ground. But this woman... She's taken the mission of family-based care to heart. I'm going to do this till the time God calls me home. This is Akasua. Akasua has never met Helena or Samuel before. She's not a social worker. But what she's doing still fits into the overall goal of the Care Reform Initiative. You see, Akasua is a foster mother. So when kids can't be reunified with their families, foster care is often the next step. That way, kids still grow up in a home, outside of the walls of an orphanage. For Akasua, this is intensely personal. She knows the pain of not having a sense of family. The day her husband died was the darkest of her life. It, was, uh, it wasn't easy when he passed. I remember it very well. Akasua was left penniless, but she had three biological kids who all depended on her. So I started selling the little properties that I have, my clothes, my, my car and used the money to buy a ticket to the United States. She lived with a widow in South Carolina, and things started getting better. She joined a church, found support from the community. She's able to see her kids through school. And her second son, he attended Stanford University. He graduated in 2008. But one Christmas, when all her kids were home, she saw something that broke her heart. I saw the loneliness. I saw the, the, the vacuum in there. In their hearts, I saw it, I felt it because I've been there before. But there are a lot of children that are just like my own kids that are also going through the same thing that I went through and my kids are going through, you know. And there's no one there to love on them, to encourage them like the way I am encouraging mine. So later, Akasua came home to Ghana. She moved back to her old house, and this time, she used that home to create a new family. A family for kids in her community who don't have families to go back to. There are 16 kids here. That's a lot of kids. But Akasua is committed to giving them a safe place to grow up. She asked that I not use their names to protect them from the stigma of being labeled an orphan. She wants this to be a home for them. One thing that I, I want you also to know is... Um, I really don't like that word orphanage. Uh, ours is not an. Um, oh, this place is, this place is home. 
home like your home or her home. This is home. This is home. Akasuas had a fight to keep this just a home. A few years ago, she was approached by a big TV company. They wanted to feature her 16 kids on this national TV show. And to sweeten the deal, the company offered Akasua enough money to complete the rest of her unfinished house. But Akasua turned them down. I'm not looking for them to come and build a house for me or come and buy a house for me. I'm not looking for any profit. As we climbed up the porch stairs, three kids came out to say hi. They were about 11 or 12 years old. Two were wearing Western clothes, jeans and polos. The third boy wore a more traditional tunic. It had a very detailed neckline. And I have to be very honest with you, Christine. The way you see my kids dressed, it's not because you are coming here. This is the way they dress every day. Because I keep telling them, you don't know who is coming. Maybe Obama is coming, you don't know. (laughs) Excuse me. But these kids were not only well-dressed, they were also dynamic. The boy in the tunic greeted me in English. That's the official language in Ghana. He told me that he wanted to go into fashion. He's been studying traditional Ghanaian fabrics, and that tunic he's wearing, he made it himself. Looking at where these kids are coming from, you don't have the least idea. I mean, from nothing, no English. Some of them could not speak English. Some of them, I taught them the alphabets. Akasua tells me these kids were referred by social workers or community members. Some have lost their parents. Others have parents who are too poor to care for them. If, if I tell you where I picked them from, and looking straight into their eyes, telling them that it is going to be well, you are going to go to school, you are going to become someone in future, let's go. And I mean somebody that could not speak English, and now the person is the 10th highest in his class. We reached the top, and Akasua turned to open a door. This was the kid's bedroom. It was brightly lit. Along the wall were bunk beds padded with colorful pillows and draped in mosquito nets. This room felt homey. It felt safe. This bedroom was worlds apart from the wooden bookshelf beds in the orphanage that Samuel saw. I sleep in the same bedroom with them. My bed is right there by them. And when I rise up in the night and I see them, when I see them all lying in their beds, and I go back to where I got them from, I, uh, I, it's, it's amazing. The feeling is, is amazing. Akasu intends to raise these kids until they can support themselves. She stopped taking in more kids. That way, she can devote her attention to the ones in this home right now. And these 16 kids... She doesn't call them orphans. She calls them her sons and daughters. The, the kind of picture we have in our mind, it has to go. They are orphans, and so what? Do their nose have to run and enter into their mouth? Come on. They are growing up like an ordinary child. There is no stigma on them. This idea to raise children and families, not institutions, is a powerful one. All throughout the country, there are people rethinking the way Ghana cares for orphan children. From social workers, to orphanage directors, to foster mothers, there is change happening at every level. Initially, orphanages were just bringing up 
every day somebody builds a structure and calls it an orphanage. Every people were going to houses, collecting other people's children. When social welfare started with the um, care reform initiative, um, we realized that that had that has stopped drastically. The orphanages themselves confess now that now they understand the issues. They are sending children out back to families. Some old grown-up children are being supported to live independently. Since the Care Reform Initiative started in 2007, over 1,500 children have been reunified with their families. In orphanages that had exploited children, 60 were shut down. That message, it's spreading beyond Ghana's borders. At the international scene, a lot of people recognized what Ghana was doing. Um, at least we were able to change the, the perception of people. People came to understand that it was not the best place. Orphanage was not the best place for children. The message is clear. These kids are not just sympathy cases. They're not poster children. They're not defined by being orphaned or hungry or poor. They have names. Opinions. Voices. I want to be a medical doctor. And I want to be a lawyer and also a doctor. And that's Maybe I don't know where my uh, my life will end. And so I'm praying God that God will extend my life so that I become someone better.